Welcome to the Inside the Eight podcast with your hosts, Jamie Monroe and Colleen McGarity. This podcast is dedicated to all things women's lacrosse. We will break down top games of the week, discuss coaching strategies, and lacrosse recruiting. We will even bring in some of the game's top coaches and players as special guests. And now, here are your hosts, Jamie and Colleen. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to be back on the Inside the Eight podcast with Colleen McGarity. Um, crazy times right now, huh, Colleen? It's very crazy. Uh, I just got noticed last night. We are shut down until March 30th. Um, just had a three-hour session this morning on how to do virtual classrooms. So this will be interesting just to how do you engage a team, how do you coach a team when you can't be with your team. Are you going to work with them virtually? Um, we'll get talking with Alex Frank a little bit later here on the podcast um, about how do you like engage and keep them normal you know, I mean, through your day and when it, things have been changed and, you know, interrupted. So I'm going to try and keep as much normalcy as possible. Um, try and, you know, meet them every day via Google Meet or however I can over the computer at 3.30 because that's when our practice time would be. So I'm going to try and keep that normal and then create a workout plan of some sort just to keep them engaged, keep them working towards something. Because who knows, we might be back in April, we might not. And, you know, get them still on a regular schedule yeah we're the same way we're we're shut down now but we're not allowed to have any contact with them it's um, crazy you should get them some books they should start reading well we do have you know we do have our jmp platform set up with yes, one of the exactly actually i'm gonna have my girls you know i'm gonna i'm gonna really get into it over these next couple of weeks and see what applies for my girls to do in the means of their own home or in their backyard but a lot of your content is actually perfect for right now to, you know, you can always educate your mind, whether you can't yeah. be on the yeah. Well, there's like academy content if you're alone, and then there's, you know, you could you could do the captain's practices if they want to, right? I mean, no, even the, the breakdown of the games that are on there as well, you know? So, like, just to have them, like, watch a breakdown, the way that we look at it is so different than a player. Like, I didn't really start to understand the importance of film until later. So I'm hoping that during this time of, you know, our hiatus, maybe they can – learn what I learned at a later age now yeah. younger in high school well um Colin and I uh had been talking about this about this podcast and and what we were going to kind of do moving forward and honestly what we want to try to do is get everybody's minds off uh this coronavirus if not just for a few minutes and so today we have an awesome guest and Alex Frank the head coach from Dartmouth a former teammate of Colleen's where they won a couple national championships together. And for the most part, we just talk lacrosse. Uh, we talk offense, defense, eight meters, uh, building culture. Um, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm really excited to have Alex on here. She was a great teammate. Uh, we have actually have a strong connection because I coached at Colorado. She took my place at Colorado. Um, oh, yeah. Now she's a head coach at Dartmouth. And then we had three years together at Northwestern. And she's just an unbelievable workhorse, really, really smart player, great teammate, just, you know, Checks all the boxes. Alex, really excited to have you on the show. Uh, thanks for uh, taking the time to come on. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be able to speak. Um, so I'll start it out. Alex, this has been a kind of crazy two days. We're going to keep it brief on the craziness to get everyone, you know, off all of the sadness, the strong feelings about everything that's going on. But what are your first reactions? Obviously, this is your first year as a head coach. So what's going on right now in the Dartmouth world with this big decision to stop the seasons? Yeah, you know, I don't think anyone could have anticipated this, especially first year head coach. Definitely did not see my season um, ending like this. Um, but I think, you know, there was always communication since the beginning of the week, especially with the Ivy League. They were um, really doing a good job of kind of letting us know what where this was going and um i think while it was a shock to everyone you know we we obviously trust what the ivy league does and what our dartmouth administrators do for us and you know we just hope that it it's the we're on the right end of things that you know we're everything is for the well-being of our student athletes and for their families and our fans and you know the staff um and i think it's just a crazy time in general but there's not a lot you can say. Like you said, you want to keep it off everyone's mind. And I think for us as a Dartmouth family, we've really, you know, we've honored our seniors and, and we've reflected on the last seven months that we've had together. And it, and it truly has been a special time for us. And, 
you know, there's no words to say that will make any of it feel any better for anyone. But, you know, if you can reflect on what you've done and, and what you've built and, you know, for my class, specifically my seniors, they've really gone through a lot over the last four years. And, you know, it's just another thing that, um, is a road bump in, in their lives, but they, you know, continue to power on. And I know they're going to do great things, whatever that might be in the future. And I'm just excited. I got the opportunity to work with them, even if it was a short amount of time. Wow. Yeah, that's great. I mean, and then going off of, you know, this emotional time, what do you, what are your next steps? Like, what are you going to do? <laughs> that's a great question. You know, I think for us is to answer a lot of questions people have. Um, you know, I think there's still a lot that we don't know about. Um, you know, I, I've been obviously on Twitter and social media and the red shirt coronavirus has become a hashtag. And, you know, I think that's something that everyone has to kind of figure out, but it's also a waiting game. I think, you know, people want answers right away and I'm not sure we're going to have them. Um, so, you know, in this short amount of time for us, it was making sure that our student athletes are well taken care of before they, you know, um, depart campus and, you know, that they understand everything that um, is going on on campus and, and what Dartmouth is saying and to try and provide what the next steps might be for them. And, you know, we talk about, do we, keep our players engaged and as if we're in season because who knows what can happen and you know I think that's something we'll we'll do we'll create a workout packet or something to keep these players as if it's as normal as possible you know I think anytime something like this happens um, when there's a change you you want your student athletes to feel safe and comfortable and and how do you do that when you're not able to see them every day face to face and so to communicate them with as communicate with them as much as possible every time something's changing and, you know, to tr try to provide a sense of normalcy, um, even when they are at home. Yeah, I hear you. I'm trying to do that the same. We just shut down at Penn Charter till the 30th and I expect it's probably going to go longer. Mm -hmm. so I'm going to plan to just meet them virtually every day at 3.30 as if we'd have practice and give them a workout practice. I mean, pack it and then see if I can just watch a lot of film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It is going to be an opportunity to, to learn a lot in this uh, hiatus, I would think, if you wanted to. Um, are we, uh, I'm coaching high school girls across also, and we had uh, our first and maybe last game last night. Um, it was like, yep, we're shutting down tomorrow, but you can play tonight. And so we went out. And, uh, it's crazy. Um, but we're not allowed to have any contact with our athletes. So, yeah. yeah. So they can do stuff on their own if they want to, but we're not allowed to have any any contact with them. It's like NCAA rules. It's kind of crazy. Um, Alex, uh, I know this has been discussed um, on some other podcasts I've done that have been more sort of men's lacrosse oriented, but I want to bring it up as it relates to the the, the hashtag Corona Redshirt. Um, I think if it was like just Ivy League shut down, I think it was kind of doable. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like with an entire country um, – of lacrosse players, men's and women's. I just don't see how the infrastructure of scholarship money, of budgets, of roster sizes, um, you know, could sustain that. And how do you, you know, I can see maybe, all right, well, we'll just do it for one year with the seniors. Mm -hmm. But um, even that, you know, how do you, you know, having five classes um, would be really, really hard. So any thoughts on, on that reality? Yeah, I, I honestly, I have no idea. I think, you know, it, it is something that I think needs to be, talked about and I I think you know the NCAA does need to hear it whether whichever way they rule on it again you know there are people who get paid to make those decisions um, but it is it's going to be hard regardless of the way you know not only scholarship but financial for students yeah. who can't get the scholarship you know a lot of Ivy League students specifically have jobs lined up that they're supposed to start in June and July and I think there's a lot of things to take into consideration and you know for me right now, as it applies to the waiver and what that looks like, I, I want to make sure I'm as educated on it as much as possible before giving any information to our student athletes, because I think that's one of the things, you know, there's always going to be seeing little bits and pieces of what could happen. And, you know, I don't want to tell anyone anything until I know, right. you know, the facts. And so yeah. whatever it might look like, who knows, but I, I do think it will be something that's talked about. And, you know, I think it, it might come down to the NCAA says each individual program, it's up to you. You decide what you do. So uh, I'm not exactly sure how that will play out. 
Yeah, well, I'm hoping they do get eligibility back. I have two kids that are losing a year right now. Um, such a bummer. Um, but uh, so I guess we'll have to w- sort of wait and see. I'm John Canaris, founder of Oxia Time, a watch company specializing in university branded watches. Before I fell in love with watches, I fell in love with lacrosse. Maybe you've heard of the air gate. Well, that was me and goal that day. We may not have won the national championship, but we did win the Ivy League that year and two years before. The first time we got a ring that we never wore. The second time we got a watch that while it had great sentimental value, the quality didn't match the significance of our achievements or the memories we created. Ever since then, I've looked for a watch with the design and quality that would live up to my experiences at Penn. After 30 years of looking and not finding what I wanted, I decided to build it myself. At Axia Time, we create Swiss-made automatic watches with stylish designs and quality befitting the universities we represent. Premium watches without the premium price. Check us out at axiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. So being a first-time head coach, you can read all the books you want. You can study up. You can be as prepared as you want to be. But when, you, when it happens, it's, it's like literally crazy um, how much there is to do and how much you actually realize you don't know. Can you give us a little bit of a glimpse on, on how that was for you? Yeah. You know, I, I posted on my Instagram actually uh, yesterday that the best advice that was given to me when I took the job was to hire great staff and to really lean on your seniors. And it couldn't have been better advice. You know, my staff um, with T. Lattisar, Kelsey Garrison, and we have a volunteer Lane Woodruff, they have been incredible since day one. You know, we all were embarking on this journey into a a world that not we didn't really know much about you know the ivy league does things a lot differently so having to really understand what that looks like um in september i think you know was was an experience um in and of itself but at the end of the day we did a a really good job of trying to figure out what our style was going to be as it pertains to the ivy league you know a big part of that was um with our limited hours, how do you teach without having the lacrosse stick in your hand? And, and how do you like have competition without, you know, being able to be doing lacrosse or, or doing things like that and finding out that uniqueness. And then the other part of it was leaning on those seniors. I had nine seniors and, and they've been incredible since I got hired. You know, they were reaching out and communicating um, with me the important parts about Dartmouth women's lacrosse and, and what they wanted to, you know, keep in it as part of their tradition. I think that's something I learned that Dartmouth has so much tradition um, and it means so much to them. So, you know, instead of coming in and being like, it's my way, this is how we're doing it. You know, I was very fortunate that I I came into a program who had a culture that was really already set in stone and these players bought into. So it was just, you know, adding my sense of coaching style and getting them to trust what I wanted to do for this program. And, Um, My seniors did a really good job of communicating with me, you know, what they liked, you know, what they kind of wanted to see different. And and we were able to have open dialogue um, as I went forward throughout, you know, those fall months. And then come this season, like you said, I don't think you have any idea um, what to expect when you're a head coach. That first game at UMass, I think I ended it and I was like, what just happened? (laughs) Like, what we won, but like, I don't remember any part of the game because it was (laughs) going so quickly and so overwhelming. Um, But, you know, you get to watch the game film and you get to be like, oh, wow, that was definitely not our best, but we'll get better. And I think you know, again, based off of the people you surround yourself with, it is a lot easier to um, handle those responsibilities that, you know, you don't see as an assistant coach. Um, And we were able to really do a great team effort between my staff and the seniors and even the rest of the team. They've all been very open and um, willing to communicate, you know, different parts of it. And and I've really been appreciative um, along the way. It's made it a lot easier for me. Awesome. Um, I have a question about, you mentioned trying to create a culture of learning when you can't really be on the field, um, whether it be lacrosse and the competitiveness of, you know, just a D1 sport and top program like Dartmouth. What are some examples that you did in those hours that you weren't able to be on the field and compete? Um, So a lot with the, obviously the film that we have, you know, I think that it's been a really great um, tool that, you know, it's all online now, so they have access to it. So 
when we did have our limited practice times, we would film, you know, drills and things like that, and then post it up and, you know, write as if we had them in person. So we would take notes and actually write on the clips or write in the email, like, this is what we're seeing. If you have questions, you can let us know, but obviously you can't have that face-to-face contact. So it was our way of being like, we're watching film without you you know, you can kind of take. And, and one of the tough parts about that is you have to have a trust. You have, a, have to have a trust your student athletes are going to want to learn that way and be engaged. And, you know, I, I asked them, I'm like, we're going to do this at the end of the day. It's up to you. And if you don't like it, like, give me the feedback. But, um, you know, we find this is a good tool. And, you know, they really actually enjoyed it um, and felt like they could learn the game without having to, you know, um, kind of figure it out themselves. I think a lot of times when you just post film and you're like, watch it, they may not necessarily know what they're looking at or they watch themselves. And so we specifically broke down certain clips and, and told them kind of what to pay attention to. And again, it's not them coming in because we can't do that. You know, you're limited in that. And I think that really helped. Um, you know, I think for us, a, a big part of what we did too was in those times when, you know, you're doing more conditioning than lacrosse because that's kind of only the times we had. We played a lot of games that were more um, just brings out the athleticism in people. So we played dodgeball or we would um, do reactionary games, things like that, that obviously had nothing to do with lacrosse, but is just building the athlete. You know, I think a lot of my players were always like, oh my gosh, like there's so much fun. And I'm like, I believe in the three sport athlete. And you know, if I can bring that to you in the fall because I can't play lacrosse that much, then I believe we're still teaching you the game. There's so many similarities in all these sports um, that, you know, if you're playing soccer, if you're, you're playing, you're moving in a way that is still allows you to get better as an athlete, which in turn will help you be better on the lacrosse field. That's great. I love it. Um, Al, what would you say your um, defensive philosophy is? Um, I think if you ask my players that question, they'll say ball pressure. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty much all I yell is ball pressure. Um, I'm, I'm big and, you know, I attribute to where I played at Northwestern, you know, Kelly Amante was very innovative in getting out and playing the ball right away. And so that's something that, you know, I've thought has always made a good defender, regardless of what defense you're playing, if you can step up and, and put ball pressure on, you're the one in control. So that's a big part of my philosophy. I always tell our defenders, like, you have to be in control. If you can control them, the offense can't do what they want to do. So if your team has a sliding pattern, you force them the way you want them to force. Don't react to what they are doing. Um, And I think that begins and ends with ball pressure. If you can step up on them and you direct them, they're already going to be off whatever they were already thinking they were doing. When people kind of sit back and you let the attacker dictate, they're in control. And, um, you know, offenses are told to be in control because they have possession, but it's very easy to get an attack out of control if the defense, you know, commands and makes them do what the defense wants them to do. That's awesome. It's uh, ball pressure um, is so counter to what kids feel comfortable doing too, especially you can practice it all day long, but then you get into games and they're just a little bit tentative and hesitant. Um, how do you, you know, how, if you really want to be a good pressure team, how, how do you make that happen both in, in practice and um, when you get to game day? I think one of the things I stress with our defenders um, with the ball pressure, cause same thing, we had a little bit of adjustment with Dartmouth. They, um, my players weren't necessarily used to it. And, so I'm like, this is where we're starting. And, and, you know, we adjust from there. And a big thing I would say to them is like, if you get beat, that's okay, but get beat the right way. You know, like if we're stepping out and we're putting pressure on, but you're forcing them in the right way, like our slides are there. So get beat in the right direction. You know, that should alleviate this fear of, oh, if I'm running out at a player and this person beats me, you know, I think they really learn to, okay, like I'll get beat the right way. There's a slide. And then like, if you get beat the right way and there's a slide, then again, we do a better job of, you know, working together as a team. Um, I think the other part too, you know, I think it's the little things that you work. So as you go um, and break down how to pressure the ball, like there are steps. So breaking down the approach, breaking down the stepping up, and then once you make contact. And I think a lot of people – 
when they're teaching ball pressure may not necessarily, you know, break down the intricacies of it and might just say like, you got to get on their hands or step, like step up and close the space. You know, I really make sure my players understand there are steps to take in that ball pressure. And, you know, there might be one player that you can run out right away and not necessarily have to break down because you can make that contact early on. Um, and then there are other players that you're going to have to break down earlier and you might have to wait for them to make the move to step up just because of the quickness that they are playing at. You know, I think it's always um, a know your personnel type situation, who you are as a defender and who you're up against, but the more comfortable you are to, um, you know, make a decision and go with it and know that your teammates will have your back, you're less of a fear of, will I get beat? You know, I think when people pressure the ball, they think they're scared to get beat. You know, I, I want my players to get beat. You know, we are a good sliding team, things like that, but make sure you're doing it in the system that we want. So my last follow-up on ball pressure before I let Colleen ask a few questions is, is um, how, how would you uh, describe getting beat the wrong way or on the flip side, if you're an offensive, if you're coaching the offense, how do you take advantage of that ball pressure? Because um, I think it may be a little bit counterintuitive to some people. Oh, definitely. You know, I think getting beat the wrong way, you know, I tell my players all the time, like, it's going to happen and we have to be ready. You know, if you get beat the wrong way, here's also the sliding package that we are, you know, teaching them that it, there are two ways. Because what, is that? what is the wrong way? Um, getting beat the wrong way is if you have a way that you're supposed to force, you know, they go the opposite way. And so now your slide might be a little bit harder. So for example, you know, um, if you're forcing down on the crease and she's supposed to be running towards the crease, but she beats you top side. So she's going closer to the top of the eight. Um, that slide might not have to come from a stack instead of across the crease. And, you know, that's getting beat the wrong way. We want to force them down. The slide should come across from the crease. But when they're coming top side, that's not an excuse not to be ready and not to hedge. Because yeah. to me, if they're coming top side, they're getting into the eight, there should be a double team there. There should be a crash, crash situation. So, you know, offensively, a lot of times when we're scouting or something like that, and we do see a team that forces a specific way, you know, if it's the way that our offense moves, then generally we're like, this is great, but you're going to have to handle the pressure because you are going into the way that the defense wants you to slide. So it, it, you have to know that a double team is going to come, that you're going to have to be smarter and composed and to pass the ball. If you're going, if your offensive game plan is to go against the way that they force, you know, recognizing that it, it is a lot on the Dodger. Like that person with the ball, you're going to have to make a move that gives them, gives yourself space to get to where that space is. Um, you know, I think a lot of coaches might teach defenders to play straight up, which, you know, I think that's a great style of defense if you're really confident in your 1v1 and, you know, that's kind of what you rely on. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, you know, you have to make sure that you, your 1v1 defense is obviously really good and that your off-ball defenders are ready regardless of which way the attacker goes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've always been more comfortable with a, a specific way because I think it's a little bit easier to help your defenders. And then again, when you're going against an offense, you know, that decides to go the way you force them, then, you know, you have to adjust a little bit of being like, they know this is going to happen. This now has to be our point of emphasis. Like they can handle the double team. Now we've got to be quicker to recover. Um, and so I think, you know, at the end of the day, what I've always kind of come down to with my defense or if I'm ever coaching defense is what are the players that you have and what can you work with? You know, I think some coaches will say like, I can't pressure the ball. Like my players are better sagged in. Oh, great. If they're better sagged in, you know, how can you be in control when that's the case? What are you doing to make them still have control and not react to what the offense is doing? Got it. Colleen? Awesome. Um, I obviously share a lot of the same principles being on a D unit with you back in the day. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> how many years did you guys play together? Three. Three. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. How many championships? Um, two? Together? Two. Together, two. Two. Yeah. Three each, though? Three yeah. each. 
Yeah. You guys. Um, so yeah, ball pressure is everything. And you actually said something that I say to my girls all the time. We do clearly do a one v ones all the time. I actually mm -hmm. make them do that terrible drill where you have to stay in until you beat oh, somebody. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so whenever someone gets stuck, I'm like, I was in your shoes before. Just get through it. <laughs> um, so I was talking yesterday. I'm like, you have to really, really start to know each other. And this is where films in the play and just knowing your personnel that I was like, I would play Brooke Matthews completely different than I'm going to play someone else. Like, you know, so I was like, she's the fastest person on our team. You need to figure out the steps of when to approach her. Um, and it's such a tough concept just to get them because it's going to be different with each person. So I, I mean, I'm sure your girls love it, but once they buy into it, it's so much fun to be a part of that unit. Um, especially when people have your back and you're, you got a lot of back checks back in the day. So <laughs> when your girls get beat and then get the back check. Oh, I do. <laughs> um, so building off of just, you know, obviously you're instilling like a no fear type of defense. What other cultural points of emphasis have you brought to Dartmouth this year that you've maybe carried with you from Northwestern to Colorado to here or something that you've changed? What are your main, like, you know, your non-negotiables? Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that I stumbled upon when I got here was work ethic was not a thing. Like, everyone works hard. Like, I will never question a Dartmouth student-athlete's work ethic. I think, you know, they're always going hard. They're always pushing um, each other. And, you know, while that is one of the greatest things I love about my team, it also kind of hurts us because we'll play at such a high level and high pace that sometimes I'm like, oh, we need to rein it back in. You know, we're playing too fast for our own good. Um, and, you know, I, I've, I've encountered that in bits and pieces, but that really has kind of been part of our identity. And I always knew Dartmouth was a, a workhorse team. They're always going to outwork people on the field. Um, but seeing it firsthand, I was like, oh, wow, this is something that we have. And, and, you know, we have to find the balance. And so one of the things that, you know, I've spoken to them about it is, what is what it means to be smart. You know, again, Ivy League student athletes, they're – they're very intelligent. There's no question about that. Um, you know, I, half the time I'm a little scared to write words on the board because I'm like, I might spell something wrong. Um, but, you know, they're always there to, to help me uh, fix it if that's the case. But I think, you know, what I was able to teach them is, is the definition of smart can apply in different ways. So for us, being smart is being in control, you know, knowing when you can push that fast pace and, and knowing when not. And you know, one of the examples I use for our attackers is, you know, you work really hard, you get a shot off, it hits the goalie, your shot clock resets, what's your next move? Are you going to pound it back in or are you going to wear the defense down? And, and for us, we had a tendency to want to make a play right away, um, which, you know, can work. But in, in a long 60-minute game, you know, those second possessions on a defense make a huge difference because, like, any defender knows – when that ball doesn't come up and the offense gets it again, you're like, ah, oh, like now I got to work hard and I got to get this ball back. We got to dig deep. And so the offense is still in control there. And, and that was something I really, you know, stressed with our team. We get a second chance, you know, there might be a time and place where we can put the ball back in, but recognize, you know, the opportunity recognize, is this the, am I setting my team up, teammate up for success if I'm trying to force the ball back in? Or do I do better if we get the ball around, we work whatever system we're in and really find that look and wear the defense down even more? Um, you know, I think that was something that they knew, but not having really had to execute it that much, they started to piece together, oh, there is a way we can work hard and work smart, you know, piece the two together. I think that was something that um, has been a huge focus for us uh, since day one. And I'll tell them I'll never question their work ethic. That's something that, you know, they have showed me that um, they're always going to work hard and they always want to put in the extra effort. Um, so it was up to me to kind of figure out what it is we need to do to be successful. And that intelligence piece on the field, I think, was something that you know, we really needed to bring out because again, they're very smart and they are very smart athletes, but knowing and understanding when the right opportunities are and, and you know, what plays make a huge difference in the course of the game. That's huge. It seems like it's a perfect fit for you being a extremely hard worker and a very smart player. <laughs> <laughs> Dane, got another question? Yeah, I do. Um, 
I've been thinking a lot lately about eight meter shot defense. Um, I'm really curious about this because you've got this element of trying to get to a shooter, you know, if they shoot it on like three steps, but what if they are getting all the way underneath you and how do you defend them and, and, and body them without fouling them and not just giving them, uh, you know, uh, an easy shot. It seems like it's pretty hard to score, but it also seems like it's really hard to defend. So it just sort of depends on, you know, in other words, when my team has a free shot, I'm like, man, it's really hard to get this shot off. And when we're trying to defend someone, it seems like, man, it's hard to defend them. So I'm just curious about that. Yeah, uh, it's funny you say that. That was a huge point of emphasis, actually, after our Brown game. Um, they Brown was able to get a few eight meters at the end there. And, you know, at one point it was the players just kept coming underneath us. And my one player was looking for a check. And I called him and I'm like, we cannot do that anymore. The kid has beaten us two or three times and has scored. So, you know, now we have to change it up. And, and what does that look like? And, you know, I, I honestly, I don't know. You know, a lot of times when we're practicing them, I – we try and figure out who the two best people are. And, you know, we try and say funnel them. Like if someone's running in, try and make it a small space so that, you know, their hands are tight to their body and they're not able to get as much of a shot off. And the amount of space they have to shoot is limited as they get closer to the net and the goalie is able to kind of take up more space. You know, the players that are able to take incredible shots from the eight meter like Selena Lasota, honestly, I'm not sure how you defend it. You know, you try and get your stick in there as best as you can and try and get a knockdown. But, you know, there are just some players who have that talent that you hope that once in a blue moon, it'll go wide or that that stick gets tipped. Um, but I think there, there's so much on both sides of it, the shooters and the defenders that you practice as best as you can and, and know that you have to make an adjustment. You know, my player that was try getting beat underneath because she was looking for the back check, she had made a back check earlier in the game. And so I had to teach her, you know, it's not going to happen every time they learned. So now you have to adjust and now you have to play body. And so we started to focus more on, you know, the person that was on the stick side while you're looking for the check you do not give up your position just because the check is there. Let the defender coming in on the ball side really push her in a way that will kind of funnel her into a position where you could get a check off. Don't automatically let the player beat you and try and go to that. Um, it just, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And while that's, you know, I think a lot of people say eight meters are, are very similar to free throws. I, I agree with that, but it, it is something that, it's a know your personnel. Each player has a different system on the eight meter, just like defenders might that, you know, at the end of the day, you have to figure out what works for you. And, you know, sometimes it's what works for your goalie. I, I spoke to our goalie. I'm like, what do you think? And she's like, well, I'm telling him to follow him down, but that seems not to work. And I'm like, I know, you know, at the end of the day, we got to try and get on their hands and slow them down. And then a different game, the strategy might be different depending on who you're playing. So you try to have the stick side player, play body and the off stick side player get a trail check is that generally uh, sorry opposite so the stick side person will look for a check but not to the point that they are getting beat so as you kind of come down together you know this person who's on the body this person on the stick you don't want to push her underneath the stick person because right. if you have a player who has good stick work they're going to protect it and finish it so we advise like everyone's still funneling but then if that person that's on the ball side can get in front that might allow an opportunity to get a check off got it thanks colleen yeah makes sense um that's really all of my tactical questions and culture questions jamie do you have anything else right now yeah how about a little <laughs> offensive philosophy oh yeah we can get into defense. i have a yeah. defense, so <laughs> um I, it's funny. So T obviously has been our offensive coordinator, which has been great because um, it really allows me to focus on both sides and where my other assistant Kelsey is a little bit younger. Um, I've been more focused on the defense, but all in all, our offensive philosophy here, you know, what's been great with working with T is it, it's adjusted for me a little bit. You know, I'm a big control person. I think that's always what it's been like um, being a defender um, and having that mindset, you know, control is a big piece of it. And so offensively, I always felt like, you know, depending on the players you have, you might have to have that sense of control. And 
with T, you know, she has that Syracuse like edge and flair and, you know, they're so free flowing. And I think the balance between what she has brought and what I've brought together, we've found a good mix of, you know, there is a bit of control that you can have, but you also want your players to be able to, you know, work through things. That's how they get better. That's how they understand again, what each of them brings to the offense and how they work with one another. Um, so combining that little bit of control as well as, you know, creativity, um, what, whichever way, whatever style that you are playing, whatever, um, you know, motion that you might be setting up. Um, you know, I've worked with teams where I have had to control mostly what they're doing and, and control being in that, like, this is what you're running at this time. Um, and, you know, if that's eventually calling a play because we can't score a goal, meaning these are where you're going, these are the spots, then that's something you have to do. Um, I think this year, which was fun for us to watch when we were playing Florida, you know, we had spoken to our offense about a couple of different motions. You know, we were going to start in this, and then we were watching the film back, and we were like, oh, man, they just ran, like, three motions in this one set. And to us, that was just a natural floor flow for them, which – you know, told us they were learning. They understood, you know, the opportunities and what it was about. You know, I, one of the big things I think coming into the Ivy League was the timing of how do you put in all of these motions or sets or whatever you want on the offensive end with very limited time, especially in the preseason in the fall. And so, you know, we looked at what we had done in the fall and we're like, all right, I think we need to go back to the basics. And so that first kind of couple weeks of January, we just were like, how do you play lacrosse? Like, what are the concepts that, you know, you learn at an early age, you know, pass, cut through, create space, dodge into that space. And that was a huge emphasis for us so that, you know, whatever we do put them in, what, while it be a motion or a specific set, those concepts never change. You know, you might not necessarily be dodging to a place where there's space to set yourself up, but what is your ultimate goal? Where are you trying to get? And so we really kind of tried to find the little concepts that we wanted to um, stress on the offensive side and then allow our players to understand they're always going to be in whatever motion or whatever set we create. You know, we're putting you in these opportunities to see this, but it is up to you to actually execute it. And, you know, if you're dodging into a double team, you know, that's not dodging the space, which is one of the concepts we've talked about. Um, you know, there's a better part of this motion that will get you to dodging the space. Uh, I think that was something that, you know, again, we realized we kind of had to take a step back um, instead of being like, okay, this is what we're going to put in. Let's go back to the beginning and that'll help them understand and allow them to, you know, learn, be creative on their own in kind of the systems that we wanted to have them run. And now do you, are you dodging a lot from up top behind wings? Where are you mainly attacking? Um, we're a little bit everywhere. You know, we're, we're definitely more of a team that dodges from high. A lot of it is just, again, based off personnel. Our players that play at low, I think, are a little bit more feed heavy. Um, which generally happens. I, I think for us, we would love to get to a place where we're a threat all over the field, you know, behind low, on the wings, wherever that um, we are trying to create space. I think, you know, like most teams that I've seen and, you know, similar to what we do, you're really trying to set yourself up on in that elbow between, you know, the second hash and down to the pie slice to have all that space because it is a little bit harder to defend when there's so much space to be in. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I have one more question about um, lacrosse stuff and then Jamie, if you have any more, but uh, obviously you were very good at the draw. Draw's huge. We were taught you win the draw, you win the world. Mm -hmm. um, so um, what, how are you guys doing? I know last year you had a really good draw special. Yeah, yeah she, was, she was excellent. Unfortunately not, she graduated. Um, yeah. But we do have another one who's done really fairly well. You know, I think this year, um, with the gate stick, I think it has made the draw even that much more unpredictable. Mm -hmm. um, and our, our player, you know, she she's done a really great job of having to adjust and, and figure out kind of how the stick works for her and how she can draw against it. Um, but we haven't been as consistent as we would like. And, you know, at the end of the day, it, it's a 3v3 on that circle. And, you know, you have to adjust and, and do things based off of where the ball is going. 
you know, Brown again had a, a great draw taker. She was incredible um, throughout the game and we had to adjust our way. And, you know, a lot of that was communication with our draw people and our circle people being like, you just gotta, you gotta be better. You gotta work harder. You know, that might not necessarily be the on the draw taker to, you know, get it to where she wants it, but that ball goes on the ground. You know, my draw taker, you're just as much involved as getting the ball as the circle people. And, you know, we put a really big emphasis on that. Um, Cause again, I think this season, you know, I, there hasn't been too many people who are, who are always consistent and winning it to themselves. Um, as we've seen in the past, you know, I think teams will go on like a five Oh run and then it flips the other way based off of, again, whatever is being adjusted or changed. Um, so, you know, I always say just it's three to five seconds of hard work. You, you keep playing until that ball gets in your stick or you have to slow them down and defend them. Right. Are you finding that the gate stick, are you guys matching up gate to gate in a lot of games? Yes. And mm-hmm. is that just super unpredictable? Is it based on reaction? It is. It, it's kind of based off of two where the official sets the ball. Right. You know, I think that has been a little bit of um, a question mark every time our player goes up to the draws because she's like, I think it's going to be set here. And, you know, a lot of draw takers will say wherever the ball is set, you know, you have a better idea of where it's going to go. Um, but I think a little bit of the inconsistency and not necessarily because of the officials, it's more of the inconsistency just based off of how the sticks are setting up. Right. You know, I think it makes it hard that sometimes they can go one way and another that, you know, exactly like there's there's no like it's definitely not a a user error of how whoever's putting the ball in it's just what happens at that time where the sticks go Uh, our player tried to use her stick that she was comfortable with for a while and she just was like it's every so often I get the right setup and other times I don't and so we went to more the gate stick and same thing she was like sometimes it feels right sometimes it doesn't so you know you can't really practice those scenarios but again I I'm always just like you know it is great if you can have someone who's really good at it but you know you can't expect to win a game off the draws um I it's funny because obviously my team I was in a situation where I started coaching a team that I knocked out of the playoffs last year right. you know and, and so my won every draw right last correct. Year? exactly yeah. so my players will often like bring it say things about it and I go look guys like I'm living proof that you can lose 23 draws to one person and still win a great game and I'm like because you guys know that and they're like we know we know so I go I don't I don't decide my fate of a game based off the draws obviously it it makes a huge deal we won brown because we won the one draw that counted in overtime right you know that could have gone a completely different way had they won the draw and I know the importance of it but you know, if I'm setting up my game plan based off of if we're winning the draw or not, I don't find that I'm going to be as successful. For sure. And now with the shot clock, it helps a little bit now to make no it. No question. Yeah. All right. I've got one more question. Um, you talk a lot about defensive, uh, the, the ability to control on defense, um, control your, the, the, the Dodger um, with your approach and the way you get your, your hands on them or your, you know, your bump, however you want it, your initiating contact, whatever. Uh, offensively so many people teach dodging by like run by your defender but really I think we we should look at it um, more like you need to control your defender and control the other defender you referenced a second ago running into a double team not running into space and so much of this is just sort of a little bit of a paradigm shift because we all kind of teach split dodges and all these you know, run, 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 but then we're, we're not actually working on controlling. And I think that if you can learn to control your defender and control off-ball defenders that might be helping, then all of a sudden it, it's sort of a different way of looking at it. I wanted to get your opinion on that and how yep. you teach that. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, I attribute a lot of that to also some of the men's coaches I, I've learned from and listened to. You know, I think a lot of um, what I've learned with the men is like, they're they always talk about where they dodge on the defender so I've heard that like to try and dodge to the if a defender is approaching in a certain way you dodge to the top foot so now you already have space instead of trying to dodge at them square on you know if you're dodging kind of even with your hips matched up a defender can stay with you regardless of which way you're going but if you're trying to dodge in a way that is already putting the defender at a disadvantage 
you know, you can find that space a little bit more. It doesn't work all the time, but, you know, I never had learned it that way. And um, one of my old, the old assistant I worked with at Colorado, Mitch Fenton, kind of brought that into, you know, uh, my teaching. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, I would never have thought of it. You know, I think it's sometimes hard to teach with females because they're not always looking at the defender's feet. Like you don't want them looking at the ground. So it's more of a knowing of where your body is in relation to your defender. Um, but I think, you know, going back into how do you teach that control and, you know, working as an attacker, your advantage, knowing the defense wants to control you is kind of part of that, like being smart and knowing where the opportunities are. So if I do go into a double team, like what are we trying to get out of it? You know, you're trying to hit the backside because generally that's where it's open. And, you know, if I, if the double team comes right away and I'm inside the eight and I move it down low and back up top, you know, maybe the slides are shorter so the defense can recover quicker. So does it help me a little bit to hang on to the ball longer if this double team stays on and I drag them away yep. and able to make the same play? Now the recovery slower. We have that man up advantage for a little bit longer I think too a lot of that is based off of whatever type of defense you're trying to play you know we talk a lot about the man and I'm a huge fan of the man but I think in the zone situations it's it's different you know where defenders are setting up um, it's a little bit harder for an offense to necessarily control um, because deep defenders are more covering space and you know anytime I teach a zone I still emphasize ball pressure I think it's important to pressure the ball then somebody can't feed or do what they want. But again, you're covering space. So as an attack, trying to control how the zone shifts, you know, it's finding those little places where, okay, maybe the wings hold on a little bit longer when this cut is made. So how do we control the situation that, that we take advantage of that? Or your top players come down um, when the ball's behind. So how do we get the ball back up and change that point of the attack? Um, that's where, honestly, you know, I'm a huge person when it comes to scouting. I think it's important. It's a great way to learn and, and find where the opportunities are. But especially, you know, when you're trying to go against a defense who, you know, is very much in control. They, they make people play. They want, play the way they want them to play. So how do you as an offense, you know, counteract that? And I think a big part of it is finding where the little weaknesses come. You know, where is there a little bit um, of a soft spot on the defense? Because, like I tell my defenders, nobody's perfect. You know, you're, you're very rarely are you going to be able to, you know, make a stop every time. That is because you made a stop, not necessarily because the offense turned it over. Um, and I think for them, you know, to understand that there there are breaks in our defense. But, you know, if we are kind of pushing and working hard nine out of ten times, if we're doing the right things, hopefully, or probably not nine out of 10, seven out of 10 times, you know, we're probably going to come out in the right way. Um, but so that as an offense, you're trying to figure out where those, those little gaps are that you can, yeah. you know, find where you're most successful. The last uh, follow-up on the control is one day in the mid mid nineties, I was talking to Gary Gate and just asking him like, you know, this is like in the prime of his career. And I was like, so, you know, what, what's your, what's your go-to moves? And he's like, um, I just kind of wait for somebody to overplay me and then I beat them. <laughs> and that stuck with me for the last like 25 years, because really we, we, again, we go back to teaching all these moves, right? Mm -hmm. and then we start teaching fakes and deception, which is really what that is. I just, he kind of just jogs around and lifts his hands until somebody puts their stick up. And then, you know, right. it's really interesting that, we we wait to teach deception when deception is really control it's the mm -hmm. control of your own defender as well as oftentimes other defenders and we try to like tack it on after we teach all these skills um and really the best players are the smartest players and the smartest players are usually the ones that have this level of deception that can control defenses or the other way around any thoughts right. on that? no i i completely agree i i think you know deception is one of those things that's hard and a lot of it comes with your confidence in your stick work and your ability to handle the ball and to know kind of the right opportunities that are there. I think um, coming from 
a place where, you know, stick work was stressed every day. You know, that's all we did when we played, we played, we did a lot of stick work. We did a lot of deception and you could see how players on our team, when Colleen and I played, we were very confident in kind of when we had the ball and, and when it was in our stick, you know, I think you don't see that as much in the youth and the high school teaching it. So then when it gets to school, you know, it's up to you to figure out where, what your team needs. And, we stress a lot of deception here as well. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, you're just limited. And it's so you're trying to teach your players how to get comfortable with their sticks and how to get comfortable with the different um, ways that you can fake somebody out or, or use your stick in this way and instead of the traditional ways that they've been taught their whole youth and high school careers. Um, you know, the best players in the women's game have the most deceptive sticks. There's no question about that. And, you know, I think it's so fun to watch those players. And I think the more we have young players trying to simulate that and to try and they'll already be getting comfortable with it, which, you know, I think it's going to start to see a little more shift um, in the upcoming years because these players have had all, you know, this YouTube and video to access that you can sit there. You know, I'm watching, I read Charlotte Norris article and how she would watch Kayla trainer videos and, and, you know, do them and herself. Like, there's no question that's why her stick is incredible. You know, I, I hope a lot more players are, are doing that. I think it's a great way to learn. And um, so when you get to that level, you're already comfortable. I think it's sometimes hard to break stick habits in the college way. You know, once they get there, they're pretty comfortable in what they're doing and trying to release them and to give them this um, – understanding that you can be confident with your stick and, and the way you move it. Um, I think a lot of players still, we call it like stone hands where they just grip the stick so tight because they're scared to do something and trying to break that habit. And it's really hard. You know, there it, it's been challenging, um, you know, at the last two schools I've been at, like it, you can see that it's hard for players to get that comfort level. But I think the more that they do, obviously the deception piece will really come about. I know. Do you think uh, immediately of like, I think Casey Donahoe, right when I think of stick work and deception, like the most untraditional lacrosse player that would just, mm -hmm. she can touch, catch anything that was around her. Her deception was amazing just to get one step on people in the middle. Oh yeah. How much you don't need to be the fastest, the strongest, you know what I mean? If you have that stick, you can put it around the goalie. No question. Yeah. Well, this has been great, Alex. We appreciate yeah. you taking the time. Of course. Anytime. Thank you, you for having me. Of time. We might get you back, you know, weekly. <laughs> great. <laughs> Let me know. I'm here. <laughs> hey, thanks a lot, Alex. So fun Thank to talk across with you. Yes, definitely. How good was that? That was awesome. Alex had some great detailed responses. Um, a lot of takeaways for the listeners out there. Just, you know, if you're a young aspiring player or a coach, um, She's great to learn from, so I hope you guys took something away from it. Yeah, for sure. I enjoyed it, um, and uh, I can't wait to see who you get us next week, Colleen. Yeah, I'm already on the hunt. I'll get someone good. <laughs> awesome. Well, listen, um, hang in there, stay safe, stay healthy, and uh, we'll be in touch. Perfect. See you later.